It's not an insult to Shakespeare to say that a lot of his plays are long. But you know what? That doesn't mean they have to be. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Every season, theater artists working on Shakespeare, the Greeks, and other classical plays face the same decisions. The best-known version of this play is four hours long. What can we cut? The jokes in here are ancient. Nobody's going to get them. There are at least five characters in here who I think contribute absolutely nothing to the action. Do they have to be in the play? As a theatergoer, it's likely you know nothing about these kinds of wrenching decisions. But theater artists face them all the time. Now, though, there's a book designed to help answer all of these questions and smooth the path to classical theater that everyone can enjoy. The book is called Cutting Plays for Performance, a Practical and Accessible Guide. It's co-written by dramaturg and director Eileen Huber and Dr. Toby Malone, an assistant professor of dramaturgy at the State University of New York at Oswego. In the book, they offer their personal experiences, give us the backstory into some of their biggest disagreements, and also provide the wisdom of theater scholars, actors, and directors like Tina Packert, Anne Bogart, Jim Shapiro, Louis Dothnet, and Anthony Similino. Eileen Huber came into a studio near James Madison University recently to talk about cutting Shakespeare and feeling good about it for this podcast that we call Your Way is Shorter. Eileen Huber is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I'm sure that anyone listening with a theater background has probably dealt with this issue of editing lines and scenes out of Shakespeare. But for non-theater folks, I guess... I think it might be a bit of a surprise that you could write a whole book about this. So for their benefit, why don't you tell us just how heated and complicated this whole subject of cutting can get when you're staging Shakespeare? So uh, it's interesting you say that. Actually, even theater people have said things to me like, surely you just mean it's a chapter in a bigger book. <laughs> and I've said, no, no, it's a whole book about cutting plays. It's one of those things that on the surface, it feels so simple. Oh, just take out the parts you don't like. But as anybody who's actually done it could tell you, there's always this moment when you sit down with actors and all of a sudden you go, oh, wait, like I took out that half mention of the random extra brother at the beginning of As You Like It. And here we are in act five and suddenly it matters. Right. Um, Yeah, plays are intricate knots and you can't just slash at them without some kind of plan or thoughtfulness. Um, But it is one of those things that almost everyone just learns by making mistakes. Um, And so the goal with the book was to try to make it a little easier. We're not doctrinaire about like, oh, you should cut this or you shouldn't cut that. What we have is make sure you're asking yourself these questions. And I think a lot of the questions that we put in there are ones that I maybe didn't always think about before I wrote the book. So I had a co-author, Toby Malone, And there were many things that one of us would write and the other one would go, oh, I'm stealing that for the next time I have to cut a play. (laughs) Yeah, because everybody has an opinion. And and in fact, it wasn't your book born out of a debate with your (laughs) co-author. It was. We had an argument. When I met Toby, we were at a, a long meeting and he didn't know that I recognized him because I had seen him do a talk before about his PhD thesis like 10 years earlier. Um, But his thesis was all about cuts of Richard III. And as it happened, I was working on a cut of Richard III that needed to get down to about 100 minutes. 
And there was a lull in this long meeting, and I slid over to him and I said, Hey, Toby, I need to cut Richard III a lot. I think I'm just going to take out everything that happens at Pomfret. And he uh, very satisfyingly shrieked at me that, like, no, you absolutely can't. You'll take out all the texture and all this stuff will be missing. And I said, no, but my audience, they're all 15. They don't care about Pomfret. And we had one of those debates that's just extremely satisfying for both of us. And by the time we were done with it, uh, several of our colleagues said, oh, you should definitely teach a workshop about this. And so we did. And then at the end of the workshop, one of the participants said, what book can I read to learn more about this? And we looked at each other and we said, I, I don't think that there is one. And she said, well, you should write one and you should be sure to put plenty of your arguments in there. Um, and that's what we did. There you go. And you said this, but I want to emphasize it, that uh, in the book, you compare cutting a play to being so complicated that it's like Jenga. You know, if you pull one thing out, the whole thing just falls apart. So maybe you can zip through some examples to give listeners an idea of how complex the whole task is. And you mentioned one earlier, but I'm sure there are more. Oh, there are so many. So there are kind of micro examples that can be even at the line level. Like one that I kind of love is in Hamlet, he very famously says, you know, what do you read? My Lord, words, words, words. And if you take out two of those, it's kind of different. What do you read, my lord? Words. That's a different thing. Um, And so we have a a whole section about rhetoric and how characters talk and how if you're cutting, you need to make sure that characters still sound like themselves. But then there are kind of bigger things, like sometimes if you're trying to get a play down to a certain number of actors, you might think, well, I'm just going to take out a character. But then you start to dig in on it and you go, oh, wait a second, what purpose is this character serving in the play? Another kind of cut that we talk about a little bit is how some plays, by default, we think of them as star vehicles. Richard III is a great example. Um, But it's equally possible and in some ways more interesting to make a cut that minimizes Richard a little bit in favor of an ensemble, and you start to see the story of the play as being about a society that Richard is tearing up. That's really interesting. I mean, there you're getting into this idea of director's concept. You know, what is your concept of the show? And that can definitely, obviously, affect how you're cutting. And another interesting thing you get into is that physical space can determine cuts. Yes. Like, if you're performing something outside, you should leave in any lines about bad weather, because... They are very, very funny if an actor has to deliver them in the middle of a, you know, a thunderstorm or something. Um, there are also some stages that have very long entrances. So like the Tom Patterson um, at the Stratford Festival is one where you could cut the kind of opening patter of a scene, but you're just going to have a lot of dead air while somebody is moving into a space where they can be seen and heard uh, to get to like the meat of the scene. So when we <laughs> and it's not like you can improv while you're trying to traverse a basketball completely. court uh, space. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends on the play. <laughs> I mean, the practical cuts, I guess, for anyone in theater are self-evident. They're fascinating for us who are outside of it. But some of the advice that you got from directors was so much more nuanced. And I'm thinking of one who said, never cut anything you don't understand. If you want to cut it, you have to get it first. 
which seems important. I mean, obviously, if you don't understand it, it might be crucial to the play and you just like missed it. But um, maybe you can give us an example of why that's so important. Oh, definitely. Um, So the kind of immediate knee jerk thing when you're taking a play and you have to take a two hour play down to an hour or something like that, the first thing you want to do in some impulsive way is just go through and take out everything that feels like nonsense to you, right? But if you don't have some kind of hypothesis about why the playwright put something in, you may be shooting yourself in the foot. And one example that I really love is at the end of As You Like It, Rosalind has just told everybody, okay, you're going to marry this person, you're going to marry that person, peace out, I'll be right back. And then there's a very extended clown bit that makes no sense, like the jokes are not that funny. And so the impulse is, I'm just going to cut that. Uh, But if you cut that, you won't figure out until your dress rehearsal that it is there so that Rosalind has time to change her clothes. Um, well, we've been talking about modern considerations and cutting Shakespeare, but cutting the plays was a big issue back in the Elizabethan period, too. For instance, you write about in the book that uh, uh, a company might get an invitation to perform at court. Why would that make them cut a play? Well, sometimes... Uh, Okay, so the first thing is time is an issue. So if you're going to perform at court, you need to get done in a certain chunk of time or else the court will be late to supper or they won't fit in all of the entertainments that are planned for the evening. So your, your time is much tighter than if it's in a public house that you are operating. There are also probably some political considerations. We do know that plays in that period were reviewed by a censor, but we also know that sometimes things got by the censor, but you wouldn't want to tell those jokes perhaps right in front of the queen. Hmm. Well, another example or scenario that you give in the book is that disease shuts down the theaters and the actors take the show on the road, and that necessitates completely different cuts. How so? Um, So a couple of considerations. First of all, if you are touring, you want to have as few actors as you can get away with because the fewer people, the less expensive and complicated it is, right? So you might cut minor characters or cut a B-plot in order to maybe not tour with 17 people, but with 12. Right, which is Um, true today too, for sure. Absolutely. Um, But another thing is that certainly there are some jokes that maybe are specific to people who live in London that people maybe out in the countryside wouldn't know about. So those kinds of references could come out. Um, One very interesting kind of touring is that they would sometimes, we have some evidence that they would go to the continent and tour. Um, Christine Schmidler, who is a brilliant director and dramaturg, has done a lot of work on German texts of Shakespeare. And she told me about a German language version of Hamlet, which I believe is called The Fratricidal Brothers is the translation of the title. Um, It's very short and it's in very, very simple German. And uh, it has no monologues, no soliloquies, uh, nothing really internal. It's very funny. It was very, very 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 short. (laughs) Very. Yes. (laughs) So it's funny. It's about 45 minutes long. (laughs) So none of this to be or not to be, should I, shouldn't I stuff. No, none of that. But it's because they were performing across a language barrier. Well, I love that. Um, And in your chapter about the history of all of this, you make another I mean, really important point, which is that people shouldn't be afraid of cutting Shakespeare because Shakespeare cut Shakespeare. I got that right, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
One thing that we have found, which I find super fascinating, is that audience members tend to be a little scandalized when they find out you're cutting Shakespeare. And then they don't believe you when you say, other than possibly comedy of errors, you probably have never seen a full, complete Shakespeare text. And in fact, we kind of don't think that a full, complete text exists for a lot of the plays. So when it, it's fascinating to me that there's this idea that Shakespeare's this cultural icon and you you know, you know can't mess with Shakespeare, although like, Shakespeare's going to be fine. It's okay. It, the practical stuff is really wonderful. And you talk about how when you first get a script, you sit down with it and you ask these series of questions that you were talking about in the beginning of our conversation. And the questions include, where did this come from? Who sent it to us from the past? What was lost or gained along the way? So those are those are huge questions when it comes to Shakespeare. What is your process for for finding the answers, and and how well, how are they important when you're preparing to cut? So one very lucky thing about Shakespeare is, as everyone's aware, it's a Shakespeare scholarship is a very well developed field. It's trickier if you're trying to cut a play by like I don't know Marston or somebody. So. Most well-edited editions of Shakespeare have some information about what the various texts were that were sort of options for the editors to work with. Nowadays, often there is a lot of analysis that says we think this piece of the play maybe wasn't written by Shakespeare particularly. And so there's a lot of very readily available information about what the texts are that we have and what form they're in. And I find that extremely useful because sometimes we can look at a text and say, you know, an editor had a particular framing of how they were going to present the script to us. But because the notes are very good, you can say, where did the editor make a choice that maybe I would make a different choice? Hmm. Um, there are a lot of famous textual variations. One of my favorites is in Antony and Cleopatra. Ina Barbas is describing Cleopatra, and he says, and she breathless poured breath forth, or and breathless power breathed forth. And knowing that means that as a director, I can work with an actor and say, how do we want to frame this? Which which thing are we going to pick? Um, so just knowing that there are choices is really valuable, I think. So, okay, so you go to the literature, you go to the research. Do you ever call other directors up or other people up and say, hey, well, how did you handle this? Oh, all the time. I was, before the pandemic shut everything down, I was preparing to direct a production of Measure for Measure. And there's a director and scholar, Kate Powers, who had done a, a production where she took out everything in that play that she believed was Middleton, a contemporary and collaborator of Shakespeare's. Um, and so I met her at a conference and I knew she had done this work. And I said, OK, tell me what happens when you take Middleton out of Measure for Measure? And what makes you think that something is Middleton and something isn't? And she was great. So she told me all about, first of all, Middleton, like mostly it's jokes about syphilis. Like that's a pretty good flag that you're in a Middletonian section. Um, he was very concerned about syphilis, apparently. <laughs> I, uh, but I wonder why. <laughs> I know, There's a graduate right? thesis in there. But there are some things there's There are a couple of scenes where it seems like a person at the top of the scene receives a piece of surprising information and responds as if they're surprised, and then a hundred lines later receives the same piece of information from somebody else and again is surprised. And as a director, you're looking at that and you think, 
Are they faking being surprised? Do they have a very poor short-term memory? What is this? And when I talked with Kate, she said, oh, no, no, the second one is probably Middleton. If you take that out, the scene makes more sense. Hmm. Another interesting approach that you take is to watch other people's productions. And you write that you pay attention to where you feel lost or bored. So this seems like a really great uh, rule of thumb, but can you give me an example where that worked for you? And how do you know when when you do this that you weren't just hungry or tired or distracted at, at the moment <laughs> that you were watching? So yes, um, my own physical state uh, is always an issue. I think... So so one example is when I was getting ready to do Richard III, I went and saw a couple of different productions. And I was mostly trying to think about what parts required me to know a lot about the Wars of the Roses hmm. and might be difficult if I didn't know a lot about the Wars of the Roses. And a whole lot of that had to do with the extended family of Elizabeth Woodville. So in Richard III, What's kind of famously happens is that her two younger sons, who are her sons with King Edward, are murdered by Richard's hired man, right, in the tower. But she has these two adult sons from her previous marriage who show up in the play. They have noble titles. They end up doing some complicated political stuff, trying to take down Richard, and he ends up having them murdered. So when I was watching these productions, I kept going... Okay, which one is Lord Rivers again? Okay. <laughs> so relieved to hear this. <laughs> so it was really hard to keep track of of these sons, of which one was which, of why I cared. And so when I went to cut it, with the understanding that I was going to be presenting it for an audience that would include several matinees for high schoolers and then kind of plays for the general public, I immediately conflated those guys down to one character took out a whole bunch of the stuff where they're talking about Richard or talking about the political situation. And I think it clarified the story of the play a lot. I try to think sometimes about what it would be like for somebody in like New Zealand to see a production of Hamilton in 400 years. <laughs> like what pieces of that would be hard for them. And that's, I know that that's how I experience Shakespeare's history plays. So sometimes I just make it a little bit simpler. <laughs> And thank you. <laughs> we thank you for that. <laughs> um, here's something that I didn't quite understand. It sounds great, though, this bit of advice uh, that you give, which is that if you blindly follow the edited page, you may be deprived of insight. That's a quote from your book. And the example that you give is the chorus speech from Romeo and Juliet, the two households both alike in dignity. Mm -hmm. So uh, what do you mean by blindly following the edited page. So that chorus speech is an interesting one. It doesn't appear in our early quartos of Romeo and Juliet at all. And yet you would be very hard pressed to find an edited version of the play that doesn't start with that speech. But if you didn't know that, you would just think, well, this is how Romeo and Juliet starts. It starts with a great big spoiler of everything that's going to happen because the editor says so. Hmm. So that's, that's just one example. Although people wouldn't people get upset if you <laughs> the audience members oh my gosh. really would have a riot if they didn't hear that. <laughs> they would mutiny. Yes. Yeah. So and it's it's interesting you mentioned that actually there's the other one other thing that we talk about a lot in cutting plays is we have to be aware of what people's favorite lines are and what are people going to be listening for and if we cut those things it's okay. 
but you have to be prepared for the response you're going to get. Toby told me about seeing a production of Hamlet where they moved to be or not to be very, very late in the play. And people were getting antsy, and it was like, when is it coming? When is to be or not to be? And then when it finally happened, he said the whole audience seemed to breathe a sigh of relief. But it was clear that this was something that was distracting people for most of the play. So we need to be aware when we are removing things that are particularly famous. It's a choice. And people will have a response to choices. Well, no kidding. And along those lines, you mention uh, or you consider what Hamlet would be like without Hamlet. I mean, (laughs) Hamless, right? Uh, Has anyone put on a Hamletless Hamlet? So that thought experiment was a real one that that a director proposed to Toby. And so the idea was it wouldn't be quite like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, Because it would be Shakespeare's text exclusively, but it would just be like, oh, Hamlet has just stepped out. Hamlet's in the next room. We're talking about him, but he isn't here. Um, So it turns out that doesn't work very well. Uh, I think that Toby did a a quick cut of it to look at it, and it was no good. But then he started this very interesting thought experiment about what characters can you cut out? Um, What is missing from the play if you remove people from it? And we're not saying never conflate characters or never remove characters, but we are saying be really aware of what that character is providing. And if you take them out or blend them with somebody else, make sure that there is some way that that thing that they bring is still getting taken care of or know that it's not going to be there. You know, so so we're we're very interested in being aware of what might be missing when we remove things. Yeah, right. And you, you, you talk about it in terms of uh, sometimes you're going to leave a hole in the script, right? And you offer a number of solutions for that hole. And one of the solutions is to apparently to pull lines from another play by the same playwright. Does that work? It does. So yes. people don't notice <laughs> or they like it or people. What? People, for the most part, don't notice. Your average audience member... Unless you're pulling something very famous from another play, right? Like if Hamlet opens his mouth and says, we are such stuff as dreams are made on, yes, people will notice that. Oh, yeah, people, um, people will stampede. <laughs> but but if you bring in the occasional smattering of this or that from another play, it's it, it works. Oh, I should say, we interviewed about 20 experts, uh, dramaturgs, famous directors, all these amazing people who took the time to talk with us. And every single one of them mentioned that there is invariably going to be somebody in your audience sitting and following along with their, you know, Dover Thrift edition of whatever play it is and getting more and more irate when what's happening on stage doesn't match what's in their book. And you just have to ignore that. Um, You can't make those people happy. Uh, And they will notice. They will notice if you bring in things from another play. My favorite example of this, though, was that Tina Packer, told us that her mentor, John Barton, regularly just invented lines of Shakespeare and supposedly was never called out for it. And so now she says every now and then, if she's in a tight spot, she will just invent a line of Shakespeare because she's doing it in John Barton's memory. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Just switching gears, though, Um, considering everything that you have been talking about, how far is too far for audiences when it comes to cutting the plays? You know, for instance, for, for one audience member, cutting battles would be too far. Um, or 
for another cutting parts of the play that that they're expecting, like famous favorite lines like, wherefore art thou Romeo, or tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Yes. So you can't please all the people all the time. And I think that sometimes when we cut those famous lines, we're able to reveal some other things that maybe get overshadowed by them. There was one example um, that Kate Mulvaney, who is an Australian actor and dramaturg and playwright, told us um, she had done that I think is so brilliant. And also an audience member stood up in the middle of a performance and screamed at her about it. She was doing Julius Caesar. And uh, she was playing Cassius, but she also was adapting the script and cutting it pretty heavily. One of the core problems with Julius Caesar is that most of the very interesting stuff happens in the first half of the play. And then there are lots of battles, which are fine. Um, But Kate was not that interested in the battles. And she decided instead to have Portia, who at this point is dead, come onto the stage and recite Plutarch's account of these battles, which I think Mm. sounds amazing. Um, Kate was on stage as Cassius during this this Portia monologue, and an audience member who understood from the program that she was both an actor and the adapter stood up and yelled at her for cutting the battles and for putting this thing that wasn't Shakespeare into it, even though, of course, it was Shakespeare's source. So, yeah. Well, she... Not everyone likes every choice. <laughs> yeah. She inspired emotion in, in an audience member, which... I guess she did connect with him. Right. Like, there's no bad PR. There's no bad emotion. I know I have seen endless productions of Hamlet, or or, uh, I once saw a a three-and-a-half-hour King Lear. And I imagine you have, too. I'd like to hear what you see as the difference between the experience of, of seeing a play like that and something that's been tailored by a whole creative team, considering all of these questions that you outline. I have seen a four-hour Hamlet. Uh, it was really great. I had an amazing time. Uh, Sam West played Hamlet. It was 2001. I still remember it. It was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary experience, but it felt a little bit like going underground or going through some kind of long, almost like a meditation experience. When I came out of that experience, I felt like the world was different Mm. uh, because I had been through this incredible emotional thing. I have also seen four-hour Hamlets that made me want to leave after the first 90 minutes. So if you're going to take up that much of people's time, it better be incredible, I guess, is one thing. But I also think that when we are cutting a play... We are able to give people an experience that is more specific to meeting them where they are and inviting them in, as opposed to sort of, this is what a four-hour Hamlet looks like. You you know, this is the script. It has these beats in this order, and you just have to go along for the ride. And maybe it's not the right ride for you right now. And maybe it's not the right ride for the space that we're in or for the political moment or any other thing. It's It can almost feel like a movie. The, the Every time you watch a movie, it is the same. Mm. And theater should respond to the moment. It should respond to the people who are creating it. And it should respond to the people who are going to participate in it as audience members. Um, yeah. And there are also all these different stories in Hamlet. You can go so many different yes. directions. And once you, you hone down the play... You know, I've seen 90-minute Hamlets that focus on just the madness or just the family disintegration. Absolutely. There is something about how when you cut a play, you can sometimes reveal something else. 
one thing that Toby and I talk about a lot is, you know, Richard III is kind of our play because we came together over it. And he continued to give me nonsense about, like, cutting pomfret. Um, But then he saw a recording of my production, and he said, I've worked on this play my whole adult life, and I didn't know until I saw your cut that it was a play about mothers. Mm. And that was such an amazing thing, such an amazing thing for me to hear him say, I know this play intimately, and there is a story here that you were able to reveal by cutting away other parts of it. I think a lot of Shakespeare's plays are like that, that sometimes when we cut, we're able to say, here's another invitation into the world of this play. So when people sort of say like, oh, I hate such and such a play, it's you know boring or there's nothing in it for me, sometimes I feel like maybe they haven't seen the right cut of it yet. Wow. that And that must have been so gratifying to you, too. Oh, my goodness. There are not words for how flattered I was. <laughs> um, I came out of uh, from reading your book with um, a kind of sideways question, which is, in the end, does it come down to the poetry for you or the logic of your vision or the logic of the play? And I'm thinking, and, and what provoked that is a guiding principle that someone gave you that you quote, which is study, 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 and study the text again. And after that, study some more. But when the time comes, make the cuts quickly and intuitively, not logically. Lean on the poetry that is available to one's intuition. So first of all, what does that mean to lean on your intuition? Okay, so I just want to say you have quoted Mm -hmm. possibly my favorite part of the book, um, that was Anne Bogart who said that to us. Um, I actually have the last sentence that you read as my phone background wallpaper, so I look at it every day. Lean on the poetry that is available to your own intuition. Oh, that's um, great. Well, it's kind of a guideline I love for so life, much. not just cutting right? plays. Yeah. But tell us, tell me I, what you think, it, what it means to you. So much of what we have in the book is very practical and very just sort of like, here is how the rhetoric of this scene probably works. Make sure you understand that. But especially if you're a director and you're going to have to live with a particular script for a really long time, there is something to listening to the inner voice that says, you know, this isn't going to work for me. Like I, um, I directed a production of Antony and Cleopatra uh, in 2018, I think. And as I was cutting it, one thing that I found myself doing was there are some lines that I, the specific actor who was playing Antony, I was like, I cannot listen to him say these particular things over and over. I have to cut them out. I mean, he he has some fantastically abusive language. Mm. I mean, I left, I left a good bit of it in because that's an important piece of that character. But I was thinking about my own experience uh, in the rehearsal room. And I was thinking, I can't listen to this 40 times. And that was definitely kind of a gut level response to the text. But it also, I think, opened some avenues for that actor to, and for me, to be able to think about the character together. And some of the things that he says, I I think that an audience would have had a really intense knee-jerk reaction against him. And we have to feel kind of sad when he dies or the play does not work. Mm. That was definitely sort of a, a gut level response for me. And it doesn't make any sense. I mean, there are thousands of other things you could cut in that play. It's a long play. And I'm sure anybody else would have cut it differently, and that doesn't make it wrong. Another example for me is in Richard, there are a lot of places where women get credit for stuff 
and it's almost always cut. As I was doing my first pass, I just intuitively left those things alone. And it wasn't until we were deep into rehearsal that I realized, oh, you know, I've never heard an actor kind of late in the play, Lord Grey says, uh, now Mar Margaret's curse has fallen upon our heads. And I realized I've seen, you know, eight productions of Richard. I have never heard an actor say those words on stage. And they are so important because they tell us that Margaret is the, like her, the power of her grief and her curses. That's what drives this whole unspooling. Richard is, is kind of a pawn. And so there are times when I have, when I've done something that felt gut level and it wasn't until I was working with the actors that it was like my intuition came full circle and said, no, this is why you needed this. Well, I'm walking away with lean on the poetry that is available to one's intuition. I, I don't know right. if I'm, it's going to be my screensaver. I'm going to put it somewhere. <laughs> I can see it. Um, I can send you the phone wallpaper file if you want. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you for this and for the book. Thank you. Eile Huber has been a theater director for over 20 years. She holds an MFA in directing from Mary Baldwin University and the American Shakespeare Center. Her new book, co-written with Dr. Toby Malone of SUNY Oswego, is called Cutting Plays for Performance, A Practical and Accessible Guide. It was published by Routledge in December 2021. Eile Huber was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, Your Way is Shorter, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquardt at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Mikhail Glago at Midnight Spaghetti Productions in Harrisonburg, Virginia. There's something I'd like to ask you to do, if you could. It's something I ask on every episode of Shakespeare Unlimited, and I'd like to explain why. It's this. On Apple Podcasts, they decide which podcasts to recommend by looking at which ones have the most reviews and ratings by their listeners. So if you like Shakespeare Unlimited and you'd like to tell others how good it is, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for your help. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore. Michael Whitmore